I feel like the choir and the singing already transported me to heaven. <laughs> and I'm just uh, thankful for the hard work they put in uh, to uh, practice uh, those beautiful songs and uh, to present them this morning in, in our worship today. Uh, this morning, there is in your bulletin a list of scripture that I'm going to use this morning. I'd like you to follow that. If, if, if you're really good with your Bible, uh, take your Bible and the message or the scripture this morning is found on page 164 if you're using a pew Bible. And then I'll look at a passage in the New Testament on page 1060. So I'll be in Numbers chapter 21. Verse 1 through 9. Numbers chapter 21, verse 1 through 9. I decided this morning uh, that I've preached many passages of Scripture in the New Testament on Resurrection Morning. I said, I don't think I've ever preached one from the Old Testament. And I wanted to look at this passage because all these passages are a prerequisite to having the resurrection of life. And that's what we want to understand and know. We want to know ourselves that we have a resurrection that has been given to us, not only a spiritual resurrection, but a physical resurrection that will be given to us by the Lord. And we can know that we have it on this side of eternity. God wants us to know these things. So let me just have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the passage. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come to celebrate this great day in which, Lord, historically you rose from the grave, you defeated Satan, you defeated death, you defeated sin, all the enemies that were against us, that kept us from being and going into your presence were removed, and we are so thankful for that, Lord. But we know that not everyone have met the prerequisite for them to claim that they know someday they will be with you and they will have a resurrection unto life. I pray, Lord, today that you would clear that up from the Word of God and help them to to know what what it means to come to you and why we come to you. And even, Lord, how we approach you because you are a holy God and you deserve our worship and praise. So, Lord, let us bow before you humbly today Put aside our pride, put aside any preconceived understanding of salvation, and Lord, readjust us today by using your your word. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So let's look at the passage. It says in Numbers 21, verses 1 through 3, it says, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atarium. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and says, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy these cities. Verse 3, The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus, the name of the place was called Hormud, Hormud meaning destruction. Now, that's just uh, the beginning there. Uh, That just sets the rest of the passage up. See, Israel's journey from Sinai after they were delivered from Egypt to uh, to the plains of Moab is a lesson concerning sin and concerning God's grace. It is a story of really repeated sin resulting and resulting failure until Jehovah, in his grace, causes the serpent to be lifted up, which brought blessing and victory in the plains of Moab. The passage we look at, we're looking at this morning, is really a signpost that reads, this is the way of salvation. If you obey the Lord by looking to his remedy in which he saves, you will live. If not, you will die in your sins. 
So I read this passage of Scripture in order to show you that the Lord heard the prayers offered up to him by his people, and he answered their request. So the Lord is listening to them. He listens to our prayers, to those who know him, to those who are his children. He listens to the prayer of repentance, and he responds to it. So the people are praying, and God is answering them, but yet the people's hearts, in the people's heart, there was a rebellion against the Lord. They were, there was a rebellion against the Lord's leaders. In other words, there was sin in the hearts of the people that was stewing. Sin that was not acknowledged by the people. The people actually acted as, as, as if their actions and words to God were justified. The people did not see their sinful condition. They did not see the judgment sin brings. They did not see they had an inability to deliver themselves from the consequences of their own sins without God intervening and delivering them. They didn't see those things. So this Lord's Day morning, in which we celebrate the resurrection, I would like you to seriously consider that there are four Things all sinners must see before they can look, be saved, and live. In other words, these are the prerequisites to actually have and know you have a resurrection of life. Now, here's the first thing. The first thing is all sinner, that all sinners must see before they can look, be saved, and live. And that's found in verse 4 and 5 in Numbers chapter 21. Here's the first thing. Until you see your own condition, you will not look, be saved, and live. Now notice the condition of the people in verse number 4 and 5. And they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, the miserable food that they loathe was the manna that came down from heaven, that God supplied to them. In fact, it tells us in uh, Numbers chapter 11, that this manna was actually very, very good tasting. And you can make many different things from it. All kinds of meals could come out of the manna, and yet they are craving the meat from Egypt, the meat from the world. They are craving all those things that, and not they're not thanking God for what he has given them and how he's blessed them. So what did the people start doing? Becoming impatient because of the journey, it says. They were finding themselves so near to the promised land, yet they were not entering it. Also, the route they were taking was through the worst parts of the sandy and harsh desert that presented them with unknown difficulties. All this produced in them an impatience. So simmering Impatience in their hearts, they lashed out in gross in a gross outburst and murmuring, questioning God, questioning Moses, and of course, in doing that, they're questioning the wisdom and the care and the kindness and the goodness of God Himself. Now notice what it says in verse five. It says, There's the question, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Well, of course, their conclusion was wrong. They didn't, God didn't bring them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. See, they were saying we, I'd, we would rather have slavery with better food in Egypt than to trust God's provision and daily care of their life. And then notice the statement in verse number 5. It was a statement, not a fact, 
but of disgust. Look what it says. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So see, they didn't want the manna from heaven. And it's not like there was no food. It just wasn't the food that they craved. It wasn't the food that they wanted. They wanted the food of Egypt. They wanted the food of the world. So grumbling and murmuring was their surface sin, but their heart sin was outright unbelief. They just did not believe God. See, the Lord God was very displeased with them. These accusations against God were not true. Because God is the great provider. He was meeting their needs. He had faithfully provided them every single day water and food. And the Bible tells us that God even made their shoes and clothing that they would not wear out during their journey through the desert. See, God had shown his love by providing a way to be accepted by him by faith in, of course, their animal sacrifices where they, were, they would confess their sin and offer a sacrifice and God would allow them to have their sins forgiven. So he had that in their, um, in the system in which he allowed them to uh, worship him. But instead of thanking the Lord, they accused him of neglect. They ignored God's law, telling lies about him, and dishonoring his name. So see, to see your sin is the first step to looking and being saved and living. When a sinner truly sees their own condition before God, it means that they realize that they've broken God's law. See, sin's a terrible, terrible thing to God. It's the very thing that keeps us out of his presence. It doesn't mean just breaking society's codes. It doesn't even mean that a person who is a sinner just has a character flaw. It is really sin, and Scripture is open rebellion against your creator, against God himself. It is taking up arms against the Almighty. The blindness of sin is that very thing that won't let anyone think beyond this life. It won't let anyone think about the hope of resurrection, about eternal life with God and their good creator. It actually blinds people. Sin blinds people to their, the own, their own consequences of sin because of breaking God's law. In fact, Scripture teaches us to break God's law has consequences. Just as trying to defy the law of gravity which results in fractured bones and even death, violation of God's law, like lying here, like grumbling, like unbelief, brings about certain consequences. See, if you notice, a second thing all sinners must see before they can look, be saved, and live is found in verse 6. Now, until you see the judgment your sins against God actually brings, you will not look, you will not be saved, and you will not live. Notice in verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Now, let me stop right there in the middle of, of that sentence, or before the next sentence, and I want you to notice that who sent these serpents among the people, because of their sin, the Lord did. And it shows the Lord will take, actually, will go to the extreme measures to bring people to see the consequence of violating God's law. See, God sent poisonous snakes among them. Why? In judgment, because they have been sinning all along the way, and now God is now holding judgment upon them. The desert area 
areas of, of the Middle East are well known for several types of poisonous vipers. The hornet viper is one of them, and then, of course, the carpet viper is another one, being the most dreaded in the desert. If a carpet viper uh, bit someone, it was almost automatic death. Actually, the Hebrew word here describes also a reddish color uh, that the snake had, or it also means a severe burning sensation when one is bitten because of the venom. So, see, the, the severe burning sensation caused by the venom really fits best uh, here in this context, and it's the, most, it's the thing that most directs us to a New Testament connection. Because in the passage that was read this morning, when we opened up, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, O death, where is your victory? And then it says, O death, where is your sting? See, this is a connection to what's going on here in the wilderness. In other words, if you think this message or this passage is just for the people back then, you're wrong. It is for us today. In fact, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, it tells us that don't try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them for our example, as it is written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages come. In other words, don't make the same mistake they made is in the New Testament. So see, this sting has come upon them, God using vipers to give them the sense of his judgment, his displeasure from the sin, but also that the consequences of people sinning was death to see that there are consequences to all our sin is the second step to looking, being saved, and living. There's a third thing, though. All sinners must see before they can look, be saved, and live. Notice in verse number 6, the second part of the verse, see, until you see your inability to save yourself from your dreadful condition and God's judgment, you will not look, be saved, and live. In verse 6, it says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and notice, and they bit the people so that many of, many people of Israel died. So the people died because of their sin. Now, from the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God has said, that sin would always lead to death. In fact, the reason why we die is because of sin. See, the Bible talks about physical death. That's the separation of man's spirit from his body. We all are well, well aware of that death, but there is also spiritual or relational death, and that's the separation of man's spirit from God. Man is doesn't know who God is. They make up their own... Uh, views about who God is. They, they actually organize their own religious system based on what they think God should be. And usually, all the time, if it's not measured by Scripture, they're wrong. And then there's also eternal death. And eternal death is separation of man's spirit from God forever. Revelation calls this death the second death. It's a death in which you're resurrected to life, you're resurrected to damnation, you have a new body that can never die, but it will experience all the pain and sorrow this world has and multiplied. Because of sin, this is a condition we, we are all in. For the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, on your, uh, also in your bulletin, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, this is the Bible's verdict on us. Everyone sins. See, we have transmitted sin that comes from Adam because we're all children of Adam. He was the first man, right? 
And so, therefore, we are born from the first man. So his sin was transmitted unto us, but we also have, so that means we have a bad heart, but we also have a bad record. We commit our own sins. We have sins of thought, sins of words, sins of deed. God cannot overlook these things because he's so just and righteous. These are the very things that keep you and I from his presence. God wants to make sure that these things are cleared out of the way so you can come into his presence and have a relationship with him. So if you notice, it says in Scripture, for the wages of sin is death. See, that's God's verdict and understanding of what happened to us. And if you notice, the Scripture tells us in Numbers chapter 21 and verse number 6 that not all the people died. The ones who did not die soberly took into immediate consideration God's only remedy to be delivered from the consequences of their personal sin. See, the Lord, in other words, made a way for them not to die. So to see that you cannot save yourself from the consequences of all your sin is the third step to looking, being saved, and living. But here's the fourth thing that all sinners must consider before they can look, be saved, and live until you look to God's remedy that brings deliverance and restoration, and this is where God displays his love towards his people, that he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He provides a remedy in a way to be made right with him to have our sins forgiven, and to have a relationship with him. He does that. He does all of it, in fact. We're to do something, though. And there's three ingredients to looking, to actually understanding this. And if you notice, here's the first ingredients found in verse number 7. It said this, So the people came to Moses and said, Notice, we have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you. So what was the first thing? It's simply this, looking to God, right, for the re- remedy. This is called repentance. Repentance starts out with turning from your sin to God's remedy and acknowledging that you've sinned. Lord, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. I may have sinned against other people too, but I sinned first against you. And because of that, I understand that there's a judgment that comes against me. And that, of course, judgment, if it's not removed, then I am going to die spiritually and eternally forever. What we see here is an acknowledgement of sin and a calling it what it is. And that sin is an offense to God and to his work and to, in this case, to his leaders. So, see, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of it, and it's a a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to God. So we must genuinely renounce our sin and forsake it so we can follow Christ. See, this does not mean that you have to first clean up your life before coming and receiving God's remedy. These people who were bitten by these snakes had no time for that. They had no time for any of that. We cannot clean up ourselves. You understand that, right? We cannot clean our dirty heart. One sin that we've all committed has to be taken care of and cleansed, and we cannot cleanse it on our own. Somebody else has to cleanse it. So it doesn't mean that you have to first clean up your life before coming to receive God's remedy. When we turn to God for salvation from sins, one is simultaneously turning away from their sins and they are asking God to save them specifically from the sin sin of unbelief. There's a second ingredient to looking, and it's this. 
I need a mediator. I need an intercessor. I need someone to go between me and God and help me. Because I can't do that myself. You can't do that yourself. Notice in verse number 7 of Numbers 21, it says this about Moses. Of course, it's talking about Moses here, and it says very clearly in the middle, it says, intercede, Moses, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. See, so the Israelites recognized that they had sinned, so they asked God through Moses to deliver them. This meant that they needed to trust the way God would deliver. See, God was going to give the children of Israel a chance to express their faith in the Lord and take him at his word and follow his direction and guidance. They're giving up everything they thought, any, all, any pre- preconceived notions, and they're following the Lord. Now today, who's our mediator today? It's not Moses. The Bible says our mediator today, it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And you know who that is? The man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one we go to. He stands between us and God the Father. If we don't believe in him, if we don't go through that door, because he is the door, right? He is the way, the truth, the life. If we don't go to our intercessor who has made a way for us to go into the presence of the Father, then we cannot, we can't bypass Christ. We can't say, well, I have this religious system over here. It's a great thing. And somehow bypass Christ by our own method of trying to save ourselves. But there's a third ingredient to looking. And notice in verse number 8 and 9, looking to God's remedy with faith. In other words, looking is faith. Notice what it says in verse number 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, notice, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, this is an incredible passage of Scripture that is directly connected to the New Testament, which we'll look at in a minute. So Moses was directed to make a figure of a serpent in bronze to elevate the pole on a standard and so it can be seen to the furthest extremities of the camp of Israel. That means anyone who was bitten and wherever they were bitten, lying on the ground by now in pain, all that they had to do is look at that serpent on the standard that was lifted up. All they had to do was feel to live. Did they have to work to do it? Did they have to go back and clean up their life, turn over a new leaf to do all? No, they, they could not do those things. See, this shows us emphatically the helplessness that we all have because of our sin. We cannot do anything to remove the sting of sin. And the power of sin is the law. Not only do we have the sting of sin, but the power of the law condemns us in our sin forever without Christ. See, because God is just, and God's justice must be met by someone, either it will be met by the people who, well, at least they'll be paying for it in hell or they will trust Christ. So to see that the only way to be saved is to look unto Christ, God's only remedy to save lost sinners, which is the fourth step to being saved and living. Now, let me just give you a little scenario here. This is how it usually goes. The scenario of unbelief, I call it, goes something like this. You know, this Moses, I think that he's several several bricks short of a load. 
You know, his elevator really doesn't go to the top floor. He's one of those holy prophets, always speaking in behalf of God, and we're tired of it. In other words, this old-timer Moses is crazy. If he thinks that looking at a bizarre snake on a pole is going to heal a venomous bite, I don't believe it. I don't believe it could be that simple. It goes against all conventional wisdom of medicine and science and just sheer logic. See, such a person, they think, would have died not only because of the snake bite, but also because they did not believe God. They say, ultimately, I don't believe such a fairy tale. See, I don't believe that God would send his son into the world to die on the cross in my place and to pay for my sins so the justice of God can be satisfied and so that anyone who comes to him and believes in him by faith, who looks to him, can be saved. That's, that's just too simple. Uh, I, can't, I can't believe that. Well, I want you to notice in verse number 8 and 9 again. Notice. Look again at verse number 8 and 9, and notice the tense of the verbs switch from the future tense to the present tense. Notice in verse number 8, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on the standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks, notice, he will live. That's future, right? Then look at verse number 9. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about if a serpent bit any man when he looked. Present tense. To the bronze serpent, he lived. Present tense. That means there was an immediate switch from I could look at it in the future and be saved, and but if I look at it immediately, I will, be, I will live. I will be saved from the results of my own sin. So when an Israelite was bitten, all he had to do was to turn and look at the bronze serpent and he would be healed and he would live. Now, why is it? Why is it that people hate and despise and reject the gospel? Why is it? You know, I just got a letter uh, from Voice of the Martyrs. They, they usually do all the evaluation of what's going on in the world, and they said that in the tribes, the, the villages of northern Iraq, where ISIS came in and just sacked the houses, the people had to leave to refugee camps, and they just destroyed everything, their farms, their houses. They even tore down the telephone poles because they looked like crosses. See, there's a definite hatred in the world towards Christianity, but specifically towards Christ. Talk about God generically all you want. Talk about Christ, who is God. You've got a problem. See, that's where the hatred is because the hatred comes from Satan himself. He energizes these groups to come against people with a great amount of hatred. So why is it that people hate, despise, and reject the gospel? Well, here it is because it's so different. It's, it's different in every respect from what people would expect. See, God apparently does the exact opposite of what we think should be done so people could be saved. They do not like God's way of working. It does not conform to their neat little plans and their neat little religious systems. See, they don't like that. But there's something else going on in this passage of Scripture, and it's this, that there's a particular method or mode for a cure for sin in this passage of Scripture that goes beyond the Old Testament right into the New Testament. All right? For instance, it's here to show that it was the efficacy of God's power and grace, not the effect of nature or art or man that brought about this cure of, and this deliverance. And secondly, 
that it might be a type of the power of faith in God in Christ to heal all who look to him because of their sin. So here in Numbers, we have what the theologians called a type. A type is that which is foreshadowed or forecast that represents something before something else happens later, which is called an antitype. Types take many different forms, but the object was always to give the picture to the people of what was going to happen over here. So God was preparing these people as well as us, the children of Israel and us, for the tremendous deliverance that was going to be provided by those who looked when God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. So, as the people looked at the serpent lifted up on the pole, you get the foreview of what the Lord Jesus would do when he was lifted up on the cross. And so, the people were bitten because of their sin. They were complaining and rebellious towards God. And this type, the brazen serpent, had no power to heal. But when a person fixed their eyes on the serpent of brass, he was restored and delivered. In the same way, the anti-type, Christ, who does have the power to give spiritual life to the one who looks and trusts in the one who was lifted up. So then, you come across a passage of Scripture in the New Testament which points to the fulfillment of the type. That's what you want to want to look for. If there's a type in the Old Testament, is there an anti-type in the New Testament? Well, turn your sheets over, and I want you to notice in John chapter 3, verse 14 to 17, what it says there. Now, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, who was a religious leader. He should have known these things. And so they're talking back and forth. But when Jesus said this to him, he got it. Something clicked, clicked in his mind. He got it. What was it? Notice what it says in verse 14, John chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes or whoever looks to him will in him have eternal life. You see that in that passage of Scripture, we get the sense here that Christ is the king of the kingdom, and because he is, then he is telling the people there, listen, unless you are born again in that same passage of Scripture, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. So can you honestly say this morning, on this in this Easter season, that you have looked to Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? Have you looked to God for the remedy and repented? Have you looked to the intercessor, Jesus Christ, for deliverance? Have you looked to God's only remedy for salvation as Christ was lifted up on the cross dying in the place of sinners, paying for your sins and defeating it, satisfying the justice of God and defeating our greatest enemy against us, which is death itself and Satan. That's what Christ did on the cross. And I would say to you this morning, if you are still unholy, and have not been born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Yet, if you turn and look to God in Christ, he will have mercy upon you. And don't wait to the end of your life and say to yourself, I'll become born again right before I die. Don't be foolish to think that you can outmaneuver the fox of death. You cannot. It may be too late to hope for tomorrow. Tomorrow may be a place where you slip into eternity, 
And God's not going to come, the, the Lord doesn't usually come to you and say to you, listen, you're going to die tomorrow, so get ready. Death comes like this. It comes at times we don't expect it. It comes at any age, in any place, where at whatever you're doing, it, it matters nothing. There's a million and one ways a person could die. But see, that's not the matter. The matter is not how you die or when you die. The matter is this, that either I die in the Lord or I die in my sin. That's the important matter. Do you know that? And so this is the point of this passage of Scripture. The Lord wants us to know that we can die in the Lord because the Lord takes care of everything. See, you see, death freezes you to be as you were on earth for all eternity. You today are like really the burning metal running forth from the cauldron into a mold. Death cools you in its mold, and you are cast in that shape throughout all eternity. That's how death is like. There's no second chance after a person dies. So the grand question to ask and honestly answer is, am I born again? Right now, do I know that? My friends, the thought of being shut out of heaven is an awful thought. But I know one who can help you. I know one who can give you his spirit. So we have to fly to Christ. We have to trust in him and in his spirit. His spirit must renew us. So see, today, in other words, look to Christ. I can't help you. I can only tell you. I wish I could save you, but I can't. But I can point you to the one who can save. So how do I apply all those prerequisites in order to have resurrection life? Well, the first thing is this. Admit you are a sinner under God's just penalty and turn from your sin to God. Now, there's many sins that we commit in our life. There's many sins we commit in our thoughts. There's many sins that we have, we have forgot about, forgotten about in our life. God has not forgotten. See, God keeps accurate records. So, see, when we come to the Lord, sometimes we're coming and we're admitting we are a sinner. We know we have rebelled against him. But we also come understanding that we are unable to save ourselves. There's nothing I can do to earn salvation or to merit salvation. Nothing you or I can do to, to do that. And then, of course, the third thing would be to just believe. And what's believing? As I, it says in the passage, to look. Can you look to Christ? See that there is no remedy but in Jesus Christ. See, God has made provision for lost sinners like you and me. And Jesus said, as Moses was lifted up, has lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, must be lifted up. And whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That is a promise given to us. In fact, if we read the rest of the passage, and you know it well, verse 15 says, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So you see, we're to receive Jesus as our own Lord and Savior. Nobody can receive Jesus for you. Parents, you can't receive Jesus for your kids. Kids, you can't receive Jesus but on your own and believe just because your parents believe that automatically you believe. No, that's not the way it works. You have to believe personally yourself and come to Christ and look to him to save you. For the Bible says in John 1, verse 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but the will of God. And then what you're to do afterwards, once you believe in Christ and, and 
many people here have believed in Christ, you to follow him. Follow Jesus in loving obedience. In other words, a biblical Christian is not merely one who says, oh, yes, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have a bad record and a bad heart. I know that God's provision for sinners is in Christ and in his cross. I know it comes to all who repent and look to Christ. I know that. But that's not enough, at least for believers, what I'm saying. Can you make a claim to be a Christian? Can you make your claim to be a Christian stick from the Scripture? Does your life manifest the fruits of repentance and faith? Do you possess a life of attachment to Christ, obedience to Christ, confession of Christ? Is your behavior, is your manner of living, are your words, are your thoughts marked by adherence to the ways of Christ? No, not perfectly. No. But the direction the evidence points that it is surely the direction of your life, that you have trusted Christ and you're, you're changed, you're different. So I ask you again, on this Lord's Day, on which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection is no celebration if you do not look to God's only remedy, Jesus Christ, it's not a celebration. Celebration, a resurrection to damnation is not a celebration. A celebration to life is a celebration that only comes by looking to Christ. I would urge you to humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, look at Jesus the Savior and invite him to come and be born again in you and cleanse you and forgive you and transform you. So that's what the invitation is. Now, just by closing this morning, there was a story I ran across several years ago in my reading. It was about a primitive Methodist chapel And one Sunday morning in this little primitive Methodist chapel, an unlearned man, meaning that he had no formal education, went up to the pulpit to preach. It was January 6th, 1850. A young man, Charles Spurgeon, was in attendance. Now, Spurgeon was a son of a preacher. He had read most of the theological books in his father's library. But that didn't make him a believer. That didn't make him a Christian. So one day, it was a snowy morning. The church that he was tending on going to, he couldn't make it there. And so he wandered into this chapel, and he was in attendance, in attendance that day. The man preached a simple text. The text was this, very similar to the one we found here in this passage. And, and the text was this in Isaiah 45, verse 22, from the King James Bible. He says, look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. That was the text. Then the man followed up his text in this way. He looked at the people that were there that day, and he says, look to Christ. Look to me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on a cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O oh, poor sinner, he said, look unto me, look unto Christ and live. Well, that day, Charles Spurgeon looked to Christ and was saved. And he thought this, 
that's something simple. I can do that. All I have to do is look to be saved. Because the Lord did all the rest. And he became one of the most influential ministers of the gospel in the 18th century. And his influence is still felt today to those who are in the ministry and read his stuff. It's amazing. Jesus said this to Martha, who was the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, was going to raise from the dead very soon after he talked to her. And he said this to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's the question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe that? That's the question. Do you believe it? Because if you don't believe it and set it aside and never look to Christ, I cannot say this morning that you can go to heaven or you can have resurrection life. You can't. So the only solution that you have is to please get your head out of the clouds. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to a religious system. Don't look to your works. Don't look to your sacraments that you participated in. Don't look to anything. Look to Christ and you will be saved. That's how it happens. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, this morning I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for the clarity of the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would not allow us to forget these words, these passages. I pray, Lord, you would not let us alone until we have looked to Christ, until we by faith believed in his death, burial, and resurrection. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the assurance from the word of God and your spirit that the Bible says these things I've written unto you who have believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. I pray, Lord, that's what we would know. And then once we receive you, that we would, Lord Jesus, go on to live for you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if anybody needs to talk to me about this message because you do not know where you stand before God, please do not hesitate to talk with me today, all right? And I'll be up here or around, and if you would like to pull me aside or any of our elders, Greg or Khalif, uh, uh, at the keyboard over there, Greg right here, uh, then please do that. All right, let's stand together, and let's close this morning.